The word dharma, as you know, has a general meaning of the truth or the way things are or the nature of things. And here in this context, it also means specifically <coughs> the teachings of the Buddha. Now, the two great wings of dharma practice, the wings of wisdom and compassion, And we need to cultivate and develop both of these wings if we are going to fly on this path of awakening. Without wisdom, we might have compassion for the suffering of beings, but we wouldn't necessarily have the insight into understanding the causes of that suffering or the best ways to alleviate it. Or we might have wisdom and insight into the causes of suffering, but if we don't have compassion, we won't be motivated to act to alleviate that suffering. So we really need to bring both of these great qualities into balance. It's said that when both wisdom and compassion are developed and cultivated, enlightenment is unavoidable. So our task is clear. Over the past week or so, we've discussed in different ways the various wisdom aspects of the mind, exploring the impermanent, unsatisfying, impersonal, empty, insubstantial nature of phenomena. Tonight I'd like to talk more about the compassion side. And the Buddha emphasized this hard aspect of the teachings in many different ways. He emphasized it in his teaching of the Brahma Viharas. When we cultivate these boundless states of loving kindness, of compassion, of empathetic joy, of equanimity... He also emphasized compassion in the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right intention or right aspiration, which is usually defined as developing those mind states and those thoughts which are free of sense desire, which is renunciation, free of ill will, which is metta, loving kindness, and free of cruelty which is compassion. So here the dichotomy of skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome mind states are very clear. The mind state of cruelty wishes to harm beings. It's the disposition to cause pain and to cause suffering. That's what cruelty means. And we might think of this as an extreme and rare case in the world. You know, who would want to cause harm? Who would want to cause suffering to beings? And yet we can see the manifestation of this mind state in so many situations of violence throughout the world. And sometimes this state of cruelty seems infectious. It seems to infect whole populations you know, we see this in the, in the killing fields of destruction in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Darfur, you know, in so many places around the world. We can see this mind state of cruelty manifest in the destruction of so many native and indigenous cultures. I mentioned the other night you know, listening to a book about Crazy Horse and his life. And it was a beautiful book and a heartbreaking book to, to read about the history, you know, of violence and cruelty inflicted upon the native cultures. You know, we see it in the violence and cruelty of slavery and the legacy of racism. We see cruelty in the violence towards women, you know, and the violence of homophobia, 
the range and force of this defilement, this state of mind, is extensive in the world. You know, it's very far-reaching. And it shouldn't be underestimated because it's the cause of a huge amount of suffering. But there is also a powerful antidote to this great destructive energy of cruelty. And that is the feeling of compassion. And compassion is that strong feeling in the heart and in the mind that wishes to alleviate the suffering that is there. Compassion wants to bring suffering to an end. When we develop it in ourselves, it helps to overcome the cruelty of indifference, of inaction. It's really the strong feeling, the strong motivation to act. And Thich Nhat Hanh, in his usual beautiful and poetic way, he summed this up so clearly when he said, compassion is a verb. Compassion moves us to act. And it was this feeling that motivated the Bodhisattva, you know, the Buddha in his previous lifetimes. It's what sustained him in this long journey towards Buddhahood. The Dalai Lama, who is one of the greatest embodiments of compassion. I mean, when we're with him, you can just feel the kindness and compassion radiating from him. He said, compassion and love are precious things in life. Compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. That's kind of interesting. They're not complicated, they're simple, but they're difficult to practice. It's worth investigating why such ennobling qualities, qualities of love, qualities of compassion, why should they be difficult to practice? One would think that they would be easy to cultivate and develop. And as we begin to investigate why they're difficult to practice, we might also uncover even small and unnoticed moments of cruelty within ourselves that we overlook. Compassion arises from our willingness to come close to suffering. And here's the problem. Though we may want to be compassionate and maybe very often are in different situations, it is not always easy to open to the suffering that's present. Now, just in the course of this week, I'm sure you've noticed many times when we don't want to particularly open to our own suffering, to our own pain. And just as we don't want to acknowledge you know, the pain and suffering within ourselves, we don't always want to open or are able to open to the suffering and pain of others. There are such strong tendencies and patterns in our mind that keep us defended and keep us withdrawn, keep us indifferent, keep us apathetic in the face of suffering. And this indifference which is often unacknowledged, we're not even aware that we're indifferent, is really a great barrier to compassionate response. It's a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver. And you have to now imagine yourself on the East Coast in the winter, which may be a little hard to do today. But she wrote a wonderful poem called Beyond the Snow Belt. And in this poem, she describes a very destructive blizzard which happened two counties north of where one lived. You know, and we read about the destruction and the, the suffering caused by this great storm. And she wrote in this poem, Beyond the Snow Belt, except as you have loved, 
all news arrives as from a distant land. And in reading that, it resonated so strongly with me because we hear so much news of suffering from around the world. But except as we have loved, it's all news arriving as if from a distant land. We're not close to it necessarily. We don't necessarily connect with it. So as an experiment, watch your own mind, watch your own heart, the next time you approach a situation of suffering. It might be pain in one's own body. How many of us, as we come in contact with the pain, say, oh good, this is a, ch- this is a chance to explore pain, to come close to, no, probably our first reaction is, oh no. That's that reaction of withdrawal from the suffering that's there. You know, we withdraw or defend against painful emotions, you know, feelings of discontent or fear or shame or unworthiness or jealousy or loneliness. It's not easy to actually open to them and to feel the suffering. Watch what happens the next time you're in a situation or come close in an interaction with a difficult person. You know, is our heart open to that person or are we defended in some way? Or what do we do when we become aware of the huge amount of suffering in the world? You know, the racial injustice or religious or political violence, you know, or natural disasters. What happens when we face these situations, either in person or through the very vivid images of the media? Do we feel uneasy in the face of suffering? Do we pull back? Do we withdraw? Do we turn away? Or do we let it in? And right there is the place of practice. And I saw all of these tendencies in myself, in my own mind, in one very ordinary situation in India, in the years that I was practicing there. Those of you you who have been there know that in India, there are many, many wild dogs just in the villages around in the most pitiful conditions. I mean, nobody's caring for them. They're mostly starving, mange all over, And they would just be wandering around, you know, they're part of the landscape. So very often I would be sitting, this is when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya, I would be sitting in the tea shop, the chai shop, you know, in the village. And these dogs are just wandering, right, you know, among one. And it was so interesting watching my mind in various places. There were times when I was really open and could see and feel the suffering of these animals, you know, and there was that compassionate connection, I'd, you know, give them a little food. And there were other times I just didn't want to see it. I wanted to have my tea and my sweets, (laughs) and I could just feel kind of that blocking out of the truth of suffering that was right in front of me. And it was all in there, you know, and sometimes it would be one way and sometimes it would be the other way. So the question for us is, is it actually possible to open our hearts given the magnitude of suffering that's in the world? Is it possible to open to it with compassion and diminish this subtle cruelty of being indifferent, of being apathetic? This challenge is not a theoretical one. You know, it's not enough to admire these very noble qualities of love and kindness and compassion in beings like the Dalai Lama or Deepama or the great, many of the great teachers we know. It's not enough to admire them from afar. 
you know, as being wonderful ideas, but removed from our daily practice, our daily life situation. And it's not enough to simply cultivate them in the very special circumstances of a retreat. Dharma practice really means the transformation of our consciousness that increasingly makes compassionate responsiveness to situations of suffering the default setting of our lives. That's the path that we're on. And it's not easy. It takes practice. Compassion requires us to be open, to be mindful, to be equanimous, learning to let things in, to let the suffering in, without drowning in the suffering, and without being overcome by sorrow, as can often happen. It's learning to simply be with the truth of how things are. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. This is where they come together. As we strengthen our mindfulness, we're learning to open, to see things just as they are. We're letting the suffering in. We're feeling it. We're being with it. There's a Zen teacher in the Bay Area who I don't know personally, but I read some of his writings, and maybe some of you do know him. His name is Lou Richmond, who some years ago suffered a very devastating disease. It was viral encephalitis. You know, it was an often fatal illness. He was in a coma for two weeks. And when he came out, there was a fair amount of brain damage and other disabilities. And he said that it took almost three years to fully recover from this disease. And he was writing about this. He was writing about this whole episode of his life. And he wrote something so beautiful about his understanding of the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering. So I just want to read these few lines. Sometimes when I'm asked to describe the Buddhist teaching, I say this. Everything is connected Nothing lasts. You are not alone. This is really just a restatement of the traditional three marks of existence, non-self, impermanence, and suffering. I don't think I would have expressed the truth of suffering as you are not alone before my illnesses. But now I find that talking about it that way gets at something important. The fact that we all suffer means we are all in the same boat, and that's what allows us to feel compassion. And to me, that just struck exactly the vital point. Do you remember experiences when perhaps you were in a lot of pain or going through something difficult, and then thought of other people going through the same thing? And the feeling of compassion that arose naturally from that because we were feeling the pain ourselves. That's what he's talking about. The truth of suffering is we are not alone. We're all in the same boat. And when we can open to the truth of that, compassion arises more and more spontaneously. What's so amazing and beautiful about this practice is that as we learn to open more and more fully to our own suffering, we have a greater and greater ability and a greater courage to be with the suffering of others. The beginning of compassion is empathy. And this happens when we take a moment to stop in the forward rush of our lives and to feel what is going on in another person. But so often we're just rushing in this forward momentum that we don't take that moment to stop and actually connect and actually feel. And so this stopping, 
And it's both a literal physical stopping, but it's also a stopping of that inward rush. This stopping is a great practice. Now, because there may be many times when we're cognizant of another's pain, but we really don't take the time, even for a few moments, to actually feel it. And that is like the difference between recognition, perception, and mindfulness. We can recognize that something is there, but do we let it in? Do we feel it? That's what empathy is. It's the heart-mind of inclusion. You know, it takes others in. Ryokan, who was this wonderful Japanese 18th, 19th century monk, poet, hermit, player with children, you know, and there's wonderful poems you know, and stories of his life. He beautifully captured this open-heartedness, this sensitivity to the world, even to inanimate objects. This is a little poem he wrote, which is just one of my favorites. I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. (laughs) I'm in compassion for his begging bowl. No one, it was so poor and dented, no one would even want it. We can practice developing empathy in a wide variety of situations. Can we open to the distress of the restless person sitting next to us in meditation? You know, and really open to the suffering rather than thinking, why are they disturbing my meditation? <laughs> Do you think it's fun being restless? <laughs> no, as we all know. But in that very moment, in that little instance, how are we, how are we responding? It might be opening to the difficulties of someone we're very close to or to a stressful situation in the world. Empathy has the great power to lift us out of our self-referential point of view. I had a striking example of this. This this is a situation that goes back quite a few years now. It was a situation where something happened at at IMS, uh, and there was just this big conflict between myself and this other person. From my point of view, they had done something you know that was really harmful. And we were going back and forth, and this was this conflict extended over many, many days, and a lot of heated arguments, and didn't feel good at all. But of course, I was right. <laughs> so it just kept fueling, you know, fueling the agitation. And then one day, I just happened to pass by some people talking, and I overheard someone say that the other person involved was really in a lot of suffering about the situation. It was amazing. That's all I needed to hear. It just switched my perspective immediately, in the moment, as soon as I became aware of his suffering. All that kind of self-righteous indignation, it just was completely gone. And all I felt was compassion for the whole situation. And it was amazing. It was just about opening to his suffering instead of being so caught up in my own point of view. And what was striking was it wasn't even a process that I had to go through. It was just the moment of realizing, oh yeah, he's suffering also. And so this is how we can practice and remember the possibility of empathetic connection.
As Lou Richmond said, we're all in this together. There was a great 16th century Zen master, his name was Bankai. He had a wonderful little pith instruction, which would be a great instruction to take back into our lives in the world. He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) I mean, if we could remember that, in so many situations of our lives, in relationships. Don't side with yourself. It allows for this possibility of inclusion, of empathy. Well, there might be situations where people really are behaving very badly, where people are causing harm are causing suffering, either to ourselves or to others. So that's an interesting situation to explore. What's the appropriate response when somebody is actually doing something very harmful? I think a very usual reaction is some kind of judgment that we have about how bad they are, you know, and maybe even feeling a bit righteous in our own anger and judgment towards them. But it is possible, even in those situations where somebody is doing harmful things, even seriously harmful things, it is possible to stop, open up, and put the whole situation in a bigger context. So some of you may know of the story of Dr. Tenzin Chodrick, who many years ago was the physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And this goes back quite a few years now, but he was imprisoned by the Chinese government, you know, when they were still in Tibet, um, for 17 years. He was imprisoned and tortured for 17 years. And when he was released and he came to the West, there were some articles uh, written by him and about him, about not only how he survived those 17 years, but how he survived with his heart intact, with his heart not closed down in anger or hatred. So one of the things he said is that he never forgot that his torturers, his enemies, were human beings just like himself, and that his guards and tormentors were people who were also in adverse circumstances. You know, creating the karma through their actions would, would be the cause of their own future suffering. Now just imagine what, what it would mean to be in that kind of situation, you know, extreme, extreme situation of suffering, and yet to have a heart and mind large enough to see an even bigger picture and not lose the sense of commonality. He never forgot the commonality of the human condition, understanding that all actions have consequences. But what was so amazing and beautiful about his story was he held this understanding, really the understanding of the law of karma, not as a vehicle of revenge, not with, oh, well, they'll get theirs, but as a vehicle of compassion. This is what was written uh, by somebody about Tenzin Chodrick. An appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. Dr. Chodrick could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything, seeing beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and the abuses he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. So that's pretty remarkable. To go through what he went through and to come out the other side with this boundless compassion 
for his fellow human beings. It's important to understand that in situations when it is possible, sometimes we do have to take actions, and it's appropriate to take actions to stop harmful behavior or to redress injustices. But do we do this with the motivation of compassion, or are we doing it with the motivation of anger or hatred or resentment? The great lesson here, and this is something we need to remind ourselves and see for ourselves over and over again, that how we feel and how we respond to any situation is up to us. No one can make us feel a certain way. Years ago, I was in a relationship and we were having a little argument. And this friend said to me, stop making me feel aversion. <laughs> and I started to laugh, which was not a good move. <laughs> no one makes us feel aversion. How we feel is up to us. And we can train ourselves, and that's what the training is about. Kamala, just this afternoon, told me about an interview that Aung San Suu Kyi had with an Australian uh, newspaper person. And this uh, person asked Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, upon her release, don't you want to bring the generals down? And... It said Aung San Suu Kyi kind of looked with total surprise at this interviewer and said, no, I want to bring them up. (laughs) And as Kamala went on, you know, to bring them up to their highest dignity. Very different attitude about one's enemies, you know, about the people who have done us harm. So this is what's possible. Empathy is what brings us close to suffering, and then it's compassion which moves us to act. It's not only feeling what others are feeling, but that motivation (coughs) to try to alleviate the suffering, to do something about it. As compassion grows, we begin to practice a greater and get greater engagement with the suffering in the world. You know, responding to the various difficulties of beings, the various needs of beings, in whatever way is appropriate and whatever way is possible. And sometimes it's in very small and unregarded ways. You know, it might be a small gesture of friendliness or kindness or generosity or forgiveness. We shouldn't overlook these small opportunities to manifest and practice compassion and not to underestimate their value. Pico Eyre is a writer who has spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. And in one of his recent books, he just wrote about how His Holiness just interacts with people he meets. And it's very striking. He wrote, One of the greatest and most mysterious gifts of the Dalai Lama is a kind of radar that alerts him to who in a crowded space is most in need of help. He'll walk into a jam-packed school auditorium and in the midst of greeting his hosts and shaking hands, with everyone eager to say hello to him, making eye contact with each one, he'll notice through his peripheral vision or intuition someone on crutches and walk instantly over to that person and offer a blessing, a reassuring touch. While going through an almost unimaginably busy schedule on a typical day of touring, he'll be hustled toward his next appointment and then 
suddenly, alone, in a crowd of among 50 or so, he'll veer off because he's seen a child in a wheelchair by herself and ignored over in one corner. Often he'll respond warmly to even the pushiest person trying to make contact with him on the street. And that is perhaps not only because he tries to live without aversion as well as attachment, but because he senses that that person is in need of is in need in some form, lonely or unsure of himself, and the pushiness is just an expression of deep pain. A couple of years ago, I saw a documentary film called A Small Act. I don't know whether any of you have seen it. It's quite remarkable. In the mid-1970s, there was a Swedish woman named Hilda Bach, and she was participating in an international scholarship program sponsored by a group of Swedish nationals. And they were committed to helping very poor children in Kenya continue their education, to provide the funds for them to continue their education. And one of the recipients was a young boy named Chris Maburo, whose school fees, which were minimal you know, by Western standards, school fees were paid by this woman, Hilda Bach, for many years. So he went on, he finished his primary and then secondary schooling, He went on to the University of Nairobi. He then got a Fulbright Fellowship to Harvard. He graduated from Harvard with a master's degree in international human rights law. And and the film just traces, you know, from this small boy living in a hut in the countryside of Kenya through Harvard and a master's degree in international human rights law. Then eight years later, he set up his own foundation to help the bright students who were so impoverished they couldn't continue their education. So what's remarkable is that one middle-aged woman in Sweden, moved by compassion to give a small monthly donation, ended up transforming the lives of hundreds and maybe thousands of people. And the name of the documentary is A Small Act. And that's why we shouldn't overlook these opportunities you know, to express, to manifest this heart space of compassion because the impact is unknowable you know, and it may be far greater than we imagine in the moment. The lesson here is that we don't have to be great saints or exceptional beings to be compassionate. We can just take these very small opportunities in our lives. Sometimes compassion manifests as acts of tremendous determination. You know, people just with this amazing, enduring energy. You know perhaps of the work of Dr. Paul Farmer, who was a public health doctor who did a lot of work in Haiti and many places around the world, and first with AIDS and, and other uh, tropical diseases. He set up clinics. There's a wonderful book written by Tracy Kidder about his work in Haiti, Mountains Beyond Mountains. And there was one story in the book which was so striking He set up this clinic and was very busy, a lot of people coming. And then one day he set off for two days, a two days walk, to treat two families who lived out in the the, the jungle someplace. And his clinic, his clinic staff criticized him because, you know, why are you wasting your time with so few people when so many people are coming here to the clinic? and need your help. This is what he wrote. 
If you say that seven hours' walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. And that just encapsulates the problem of so much suffering in the world. The idea that some lives matter less. And of course, we can see this in ourselves. Of course, some lives matter more to us and some lives do matter less. But can we find that place even underneath the obvious reality of the closeness of our relationships? Can we remind ourselves or connect with that place that's underneath that? Will we really get in some deep way that all lives are equal and we can have that compassionate feeling towards everyone? And that's why compassion is one of the Brahma Viharas, the universal, limitless, boundless qualities of mind. Our compassion does not need to be limited to those close to us or to those around us. You know, so sometimes this compassion manifests as great determination. Sometimes it manifests as great courage. You think of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. You know, I've seen kind of videos of some of the marches, both in the South and in the North, back in the civil rights days of the height of the movement. And he would be marching surrounded by people who were filled with hate towards him. You know, and tremendous violence in those times. And here's this being who, in the midst of it, was maintaining that heart of love and compassion. So that's it's tremendously inspiring, and, and the courage involved in that, the courage, spirit of his heart. I think what we need to realize is that there is no particular prescription or hierarchy of compassionate action. It's not that one kind of action is better than another. The field of compassion is limitless because it is the field of suffering beings. You know, and we each find our own way, depending on our interests and our talents and our skills. So there's no one way to manifest compassion in the world. But if we make it an aspiration, that this is something we want to cultivate, this is something we want to develop, we will each find our own way to express it. It might take the form of an active engagement in the world. It might take the form of sitting in a cave in the Himalayas for seven years, or in the meditation hall at Spirit Rock for seven years. <laughs> you know, think of, just think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before you know, his previous lives. How many lifetimes he spent as a renunciate you know, as a hermit in you know, some cave practicing, can just hear what his mother was saying, <laughs> you know, or his father, or his relatives. You know, get a job. <laughs> what are you doing to help the world? Sitting in that cave, even for lifetimes, if it's with the aspiration, may I be awakened, may I be liberated, for the welfare and the benefit of all beings, is as compassionate an act as anything we can do. And just think, we are benefiting from the fruit of the Buddha's enlightened energy 2,600 years after his death. We need a great deal of humility you know, on this path of practice, both in the practice of wisdom and in the practice of compassion.
Dalai Lama wrote, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. So we need to just have a great humility about where we are, and we may just be planting the seeds, even if it's just the seeds of an aspiration to be compassionate. (laughs) This also is from the Dalai Lama. Speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others, which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, this wish to become enlightened for the sake of all beings, to enlighten all beings. But it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. I love that line. Sometimes I wonder why a lot of people like me. So we need to take a very realistic picture of ourselves so we don't create some idealized version of how we should be and then judge ourselves against that projection. We can be just where we are and from that place begin to practice compassion whenever the opportunity arises. Isa, the great Japanese haiku poet, he wrote, New Year's Day, everything's in blossom. I feel about average. (laughs) So we should remember that. You know, each of us in our own way can plant and then water the seeds of a kind and compassionate heart. And slowly they grow. You know, and they can become the guiding principle of our lives. And even in those times when we're not acting from a place of love and compassion, it can still be the reference point that reminds us that there are other choices. I'd just like to close with, it's a teaching from Minja Rinpoche, who is this wonderful young Tibetan Dzogchen master who just recently kind of left the whole scene which he created and went off by himself into the unknown to practice, you know, he, it's quite remarkable. He's, he just left everything. He took his passport and his robes and went off into the unknown of India. Nobody knows where he is, where he's practicing, but he was so dedicated, you know, to, to awakening. Anyway, he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher, and this, this comes from his book, The Joy of Living, But the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to all those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, 
you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear and anger and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables become as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. May all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. This is what our practice is about, and this is what our lives can be about. It's the cultivation of these two great wings of the Dharma, of wisdom and compassion. Let's sit for a few moments. So I'd like to suggest one act of compassion for yourself and everyone else. And that is to re-enjoy the space of silence after kind of the interaction and the talking. It's actually a wonderful treat to just come back into the silence, to drop back into your practice until, you know, after. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.